0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to read from verse 17 to 32. Verse 17. And Jesus left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he was hungry. And when he saw a fig tree in the way... He came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only. And he said to it, Let no fruit grow on you henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say unto you, If you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if you shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things, whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching, and said, By what authority do you these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing. Which, if you tell me, I in likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where was it? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did you not then believe him? But if we shall say of men, we are afraid of the people, for all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. (laughs) But what do you think? A certain man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Which of them, which of the two did the will of his father? They said unto him, the first. Jesus said unto them, truly I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and you, when you had seen it, regretted it not afterward, that you might believe him. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this amazing passage, we ask that you'd give us the understanding that we need. Open our ears, we pray. Give us ears to hear. Cause us to see that we're hearing from you, Lord, from your word and not from men. Lord, help us to listen with earnestness and care. Help us to see that The things that are said in the Bible and by your Son are relevant and timeless, and they pertain to our soul. Help us to see that the words that we hear are the words that will benefit our soul. And help us to see that we need to hear this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now every now and again, as we're reading in the Bible, we come across difficult passages. And we wonder how they fit with the flow of what we're reading, the flow of the story. And I think for many people, the incident of the cursing of the fig tree with its subsequent teaching on faith is such a passage. It's kind of difficult to see how does this fit with the flow? How do we explain this? How does it fit with what went before and what went after? What was going before is that Jesus publicly threw down the gauntlet. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, declaring himself to be king, and cleansed the temple, purifying the religion of Israel, or at least saying it needs to be purified. But then in private, because here he's not really in public, here he has, he's just retired to Bethany, and now he's coming back to the city. It's kind of a behind-the-scenes, candid camera kind of moment, right? <laughs> well, he looks really good on, in public, riding in on the donkey, cleansing the temple. But look what he does in private when no one's looking. Some people say that Jesus here is being destructive and petty by cursing the fig tree. It'd be like going to McDonald's and you look at the sign and you see this nice bacon burger. And you say, ooh, I really want that. And you say, I'd like to order the bacon burger. And they say, we're sorry, sir, that we're out of bacon today. (laughs) And then you get so mad and you say, let no bacon ever be served here again. (laughs) If it's not going to serve me, bacon is not going to serve anybody. (laughs) And some people see this in Jesus. They say, this is petty. Spoiled. And they say, and then he goes on to just tell the disciples about faith, that if you say to a mountain, be thou removed, it will be removed, and you can curse fig trees if you have faith. Look how much power I have. Now, I want to suggest, I want to say this morning, friends, that only the unspiritual eye would say something like that, and only the one who isolates this passage from the context. If we we understand this passage, we see that it has everything to do with the context. Everything to do with the context. Now, certainly, Jesus is hungry. In verse 2, it says he's hungry. Um, That's something that, as God, uh, he never was of course as man now he's experiencing hunger natural and he's coming from bethany to jerusalem and as he's returning and he's hungry he sees a tree and there's nothing spiritual about this and there's nothing exceptional about this so far and of course jesus sees this tree and has all these leaves on it and he hopes that there be fruit on the tree now We need to ask, why does Jesus hope that there would be fruit on the tree? Because in the Gospel of Mark, in this parallel passage, Mark tells us that it is not the season for figs. Okay? There there shouldn't be any fruit on any fig tree at this time. It's early April, and all the fig trees are supposed to have no leaves on them and no fruit on them. So are we to say that Jesus is ignorant of agriculture? Surely not. And not just because he's God. (laughs) Jesus is not ignorant of agriculture. Even though it was not the time for figs, this tree was unusual. You see, there's lots of fig trees around. But they didn't have any leaves on them. I want you to imagine this. Imagine you're a disciple walking with Jesus, and there's lots of fig trees around, but they're all barren and they have no leaves. And yet here's a fig tree coming up that's full of leaves. It's unusual. It's unusual. There's something exceptional about this tree. There's something different and perhaps even supernatural about this tree. Maybe God has prepared a fig tree out of season to have fruit on it for Jesus at this time. And so Jesus is saying, hmm, this is interesting. It's not the time for figs, but this tree, unlike all the others, is exceptional. It certainly looks like there's fruit on it. And so he goes up to see, because he's hungry, maybe I'll find some fruit on this unusual tree. And when he looks, of course, his excitement disappears because there's no fruit on this tree either. And Jesus, at this point, Now something spiritual happens. Jesus is not spoiled or being petty. That's not in the character of Jesus or of God. But what happens in that exact moment is what goes from something very mundane, a hungry man thinking, oh, maybe there's some fruit on this tree, and when he sees that there isn't, all of a sudden, Jesus instantly sees a spiritual lesson in this. He sees a spiritual lesson in this tree as Jesus as a spiritual man is always thinking like that. And this brings me to the first point of three in this message this morning. The first point I'd like to make is this, and it's the spiritual lesson that Jesus saw. Some people, like this fig tree, appear to be righteous, but in actuality, they are not. Some people, like the fig tree, appear to be righteous. They appear to be one thing. But in actuality, they are not. They are leafy, but they are not fruity. (laughs) They appear to be exceptional. They appear to be different than everybody else. In fact, they take pride in that. And they say, look at me. I'm different. I'm exceptional. I'm righteous. Now, the Lord, of course, knows they're not. And the Lord hates this. And so the Lord, seeing this parallel, Jesus curses the fig tree as a spiritual lesson. And we're not to read too much into his words, let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. It's simply a curse. He curses the fig tree. And the scripture tells us that the fig tree was instantly withered up. To the shock of those who were around Jesus, his disciples. This is not destructive. This is reminiscent of how the Lord cursed the earth. If you remember in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree in disobedience to God, the tree that he said was off limits, and they ate from it in willful rebellion against God, and God for that sin cursed the earth. Things are cursed because of sin. And things are cursed because God curses it because of sin. That's the punishment that sin deserves. J.C. Ryle says this, So long as a man is content with the mere leaves of religion, with a name to live though he is dead, and a form of godliness without the power, so long his soul is in great peril. And here I want to issue a warning. And Jesus is issuing a warning. And it's a warning to each of us. If he did this to the tree that appeared to be one thing and upon closer examination was not what it appeared to be, how much more will God do this to a man and he could do this at any time? Right? At any time. If you walk around in this life and you pretend that you're exceptional and you pretend that you're different and you pretend that you're righteous and you look really leafy and you act really leafy but you actually aren't righteous and you actually aren't what you claim to be and God knows this, right? Then you need to be warned that at any time God could curse you and wither you up just like that. And if he doesn't, it's only his patience. It's not because God's buying into your little lie. Warning. To all those pretenders. So one might ask, okay, but why is this next part, verse 21 and 22 here about the teaching on faith, that doesn't, how does that fit with this spiritual lesson on the cursing of the fig tree as a, as a spiritual lesson of how God can curse men who fake it? Well, the answer is, it doesn't fit. And it's, it's here because the disciples didn't catch the spiritual lesson. All they were interested in was the supernatural power that withered up the fig tree, right? Look at verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled and said, Whoa, look at what happened to that fig tree, Jesus. That's amazing. <laughs> you know? The point is, 21 and 22 is a detour. It doesn't fit with the context. It has to do with the fact that the disciples didn't get it. And so for that reason, in the sermon, there'll be a little detour. The teaching here. That's given is Jesus explaining to the disciples how things like this can happen. Jesus' point here is that we should not doubt that God can do what is naturally or humanly impossible, right? We should not doubt that God can do what is naturally or humanly impossible. He's essentially repeating what he has already said in chapter 17 to the disciples. And the issue here is not is not simply faith. When, whenever the Bible talks about faith, it's not talking about faith in isolation. It's not just talking about your faith in and of itself. It's always talking about the object of your faith. The object of your faith is always in view. In fact, Mark brings this out even more clearly in this very parallel passage. Jesus starts this little teaching detour by saying, have faith in God. In Matthew, faith here is connected with prayer in verse 22. Verse 22 says, All things, whatever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. So you see, this isn't just about having faith. It's not just about locking yourself in a closet and and working up the faith to move mountains. It's about who you are believing in. Do you believe that God can do things like this? Or do you doubt that God can do what is naturally, humanly impossible? This is about This is a relational thing. This is about your trust in God. This is not about Star Wars, your ability to move things because there's some magic in the air that if you just had faith you could tap into. This is about relationship and trust in God. As R.T. France rightly points out, faith is always in Matthew, not a quality of the one praying, but a relationship of practical trust with the one to whom prayer is offered. So the question here in our little detour, is do you believe that God can do all things? Do you believe God can wither up fig trees? Do you believe God can move mountains into the sea? Do you believe God can heal the sick? Do you believe God can do what's humanly impossible? That's Jesus' main point. And I think that, for you and for me, our doubt in this issue lies not in that we think that God can't do stuff like that, right? How many of you think think that God cannot move mountains and throw them into the sea? Nobody? How many of you think that God is not able to wither up fig trees? That's not usually where our doubt lies. Not in his ability. Our doubt usually lies is, uh, in his willingness to do that, right? We, we doubt whether he will do it. Will God throw a mountain into the sea if I believe that he will? Or if I ask him to do it in prayer? And there's two reasons why we doubt God's willingness. Two reasons why we doubt his willingness when we pray to him. One, we doubt whether it is his will or not. So if, I ask, if I'm asking God for something and I'm trusting God and I say, God, I believe you're able, I believe you can, I just don't know if this is what your will is, so I'm doubtful. The other reason is we doubt whether he listens to us. right? Because maybe you know it's his will, For some reason. Maybe you're reading the Bible and you know it's his will, but you doubt whether he's listening to you. You doubt whether he cares about you. Certainly, elsewhere in the Bible, we're taught to pray according to the will of God. One verse says, you have not because you ask not, but you also have not because what you ask for is not in accordance with the will of God. So certainly, brothers and sisters, when we pray to God, in trust to God, believing that he's able to do all things, we need to make sure that what we're asking is according to his will, right? So please kill Steve is not an appropriate prayer. (laughs) Um, The other thing, and maybe the most important thing, And also elsewhere in the Bible it tells us this, that we should come boldly before God's throne of grace. Because God does love us, and God does care for us. And therefore, when you pray to him, when you pray to God, through grace, God is listening to you, and God does love you. Of course, the proof of that is the cross of Christ. If you ever want to know if God loves you, if you ever are uncertain about whether God cares about you or whether he thinks about you or whether he's interested in you, the proof of that is not anything less than the cross of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ for you. Because there it says in the Bible that God demonstrates his love for you in that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. If he didn't care about you, if he wasn't interested in you, if he didn't love you, if he didn't want to forgive you, he wouldn't have sent Christ to die on the cross. So don't, don't base the knowledge of God's love for you upon anything less than that. If you base it on your circumstances, what happens when your circumstances turn sour, then you think, oh, God doesn't love me. But if you base it in the cross, that historical event 2,000 years ago, God sent his son for you, then you can know at all times. And then you can trust him in prayer, knowing that he does hear you. So let Jesus' words here encourage you to pray with faith. Yes, it's a detour, and it's not really in context as it is not really in context in this sermon. So, back to my second point. Next part of the sermon and second point is this, that the Pharisees appear like they are righteous. The first point is this, people like the fig tree, some people like the fig tree, appear like they are righteous, but in actuality are not. And the second point is this, Pharisees appear like they are righteous. Look at verse 23. Jesus is now in the temple, and who come to him? The chief priests and the elders of the people. These are the representatives of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin are those who are leading the people. They're the ones who are ruling and governing Israel. These are the people who are not only in charge, these are the people that everyone thinks should be in charge. Okay? This is the Sanhedrin. You see, let's think about who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees are the guys who know the most. They're the most educated. They know the scriptures well. And they taught the people the scriptures. And they themselves sincerely believed that they were light to the people and not darkness. The Pharisees, or the chief priests and the elders were the moral champions of their day. The Pharisees taught people to steal. I'm actually hesitant to use the word Pharisees because it has such bad connotations to it. Let's say the religious leaders or the leaders of Israel in their day taught the people not to steal, not to commit adultery, not to murder, and to abhor idols and to be loyal to God, to keep their vows to God and their oaths that they have made to God. The, the leaders of the people exalted the law and taught the people to keep it. They highly respected the law. They, they, they made a big deal about the law of God. And they, they were encouraging people always to keep it. In fact, the Bible tells us they were zealous for the law. They had zeal for the law, passion for the law, true passion for God's law. And they were all about establishing righteousness. That was their goal. And that was their sincere goal, okay? When you think about the Pharisees, you are not thinking about them correctly unless you understand that the, the Pharisees' sincere goal was to be righteous. The Pharisees gave much of their money to their religious institutions. They engaged in extensive missionary work. They taught the people biblical history, and they attempted to turn the people away from the errors of, their, of the past. The Pharisees were traditional and conservative in their values. The Pharisees, surprisingly, were actually very tolerant. They promoted family, institution. They attended synagogues and religious holidays faithfully. They were men of prayer, fasting, hospitality, and giving to the poor. And all those things that I've just said, the Bible gives witness to them. Now, outside of the Bible, we can learn some more. Josephus tells us that the Pharisees, this is a quote from him, the Pharisees are affectionate to each other and cultivate harmonious relations with the community. That's what Josephus says about the Pharisees. Sound like pretty decent people, huh? The Pharisees, Donald Hegner, professor of, uh, in Fuller in California, he says, the Pharisees indeed possessed an admirable reverence for humanity. And along with that reverence, a high regard for tolerance and a great love of peace. One of the most famous Pharisees in Jesus' day was a man by the name of Hillel. And if you know anything about Hillel, Hillel is, is seen as a great moral champion. And he's known for his, not strict, but moderate views of the law. This, this was one of Hillel's most famous sayings. Love peace and pursue peace. Love mankind and bring them to the law. In fact, a lot of Jesus' teachings about the law contradicted Hillel's. Jesus was more strict than Hillel. Hillel taught basically that we should keep the law, but we should realize that the law is flexible, and we should allow for... Um, you know, gray areas, and we should be tolerant towards people, and we should really just pursue peace and love. Jesus's words would have sounded a little caustic to a guy like Hillel and to the Pharisees. Do you really know who the Pharisees are? Because I think that we have a caricature of who the Pharisees are. And I think that when we think about the Pharisees, We think, these guys are really rotten to the core, they're really bad, they don't care about God, they don't care about the law, they don't care about righteousness, they don't care about being honest, they don't care about being good, they don't care about the poor. These guys are just rotten and they're selfish and they're just greedy and trying to make money. If that's what you think, you're completely wrong. Completely wrong. The reality is different. In fact, the Pharisees, even today, by the Jewish people, are seen as heroes, it's interesting that as Christians we think of the Pharisees as disgusting tyrants and, as, and if you were to walk across the street to the synagogue and ask a Jew, what do you think about the Perushim in the first century? They'd say, these guys were awesome. In fact, I would, I would guess that if we had a time machine and you were to step into the time machine and go back into time to Jesus' day and you were to say, okay, where's the Pharisees? You would have probably have a very hard time locating them with your caricature. And someone would say, Oh, it's that guy you were just talking to. And you're really, what? That guy's a Pharisee? Pharisee is a bad, bad word these days. It wasn't a bad word then. It isn't a bad word to a Jew. In fact, the only reason we think the Pharisees are bad is because of what Jesus said about them. By about, but what? others said about them and if we look carefully at what they do in the bible they don't seem that bad they're only bad because of what jesus said about them and i think most people who think they hate the pharisees would actually love the pharisees because they are themselves pharisees do you want to know who the pharisees are today who are the pharisees today I'll tell you who they are, because it's the same today as it was back then. The Pharisees are the people that everybody, except those obnoxious Christians, say are the good guys. Just as it was in the first century. Everybody says today that the Pharisees are the good guys. Just as it was in the first century. So in a nutshell, the Pharisees are the good guys today. Those are the modern-day Pharisees. Do you know what I mean by the good guys? The guys that the world thinks are really good. The guys that the world looks up to and says, these are the moral champions. These are the guys who are for conservative values, traditional values, being good people, honoring your father and mother, not committing adultery, not stealing, honoring God, turning away from the errors of the past, being hospitable, giving to the, the people that everyone thinks are great. The good guys are the Pharisees today. See, you can believe in all those things about being good, about not stealing, about not committing adultery. You can even be, not just believe them, but you can seek to practice those things. You can be zealous for the law. You can be zealous for religion. You can be a man of prayer. You can be all about peace and love and tolerance and know practically nothing about the message of Jesus. Right? Right? In fact, not only can you know practically nothing, you can outright reject the message of Jesus and be all those things. You can outright reject it. And what's most interesting is that the Pharisees, God has placed the Pharisees, when we come into the, to the Bible, God has placed the Pharisees front and center. They are the main antagonists in the story of Jesus, and God is warning us about them. The good guys. God says, when you come to Jesus and the story of Jesus, his main opponents, the main enemy of Jesus, are the good guys. And God is saying, watch out for the good guys. They're the real Pharisees. They're the real bad guys. It's actually not about the bad guys versus the good guys. It's about the good guys versus the perfect guy, Jesus Christ, Right? God, brothers and sisters, if you didn't know this, you need to know this. God requires absolute perfect righteousness. If you if you are knowledgeable in the law at all, if you've ever read the Bible with your eyes with both of your eyes open and with an honest heart, you can't have ignored this fact that the Bible And the law of God never once ever say that you have to just try your best or just be the best you can be. What does it say? A Pharisee once asked Jesus what the greatest commandment in the law law is. And what did Jesus say? He said the greatest commandment in the law is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and with all of your might, and with all of your strength. That's the greatest commandment in the law. And the second one is like it. You are to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's very clear. Just like you love yourself, and care about yourself, and look out for yourself, do that for your neighbor. There's no try. The best that good guys can say is try. I remember reading a book. I won't tell you what it was, but it was written by someone that this world thinks is really good, a moral champion of this world. And he was saying, and the book was called How Good Do We Have to Be? Okay, I just gave it away. <clears throat> and the best he could say, to sum up the book, how good does God, he's like, how good does God expect us to be? Don't worry, everybody. He does not expect us to be perfect. That was the whole point of the book by one of the top religious leaders in our country. Respected. This guy's great. Last person that would ever go to hell. God, he said, does not expect you to be perfect. All he expects you to do is to try. That's it. You see, the good guys don't say they're perfect, right? The good guys don't say they're perfect. They just say that God doesn't expect perfection, and therefore, I'm good, and I pass, right? (sighs) See, they don't say they're sinless. They say God doesn't expect sinlessness. And so since God doesn't expect sinlessness, and since God doesn't expect perfection, and really God's standard is not as high as it seems to be in the law, therefore I pass and I'm a good person. right? That's why they can say they're good. That's why they can say they're righteous. And that's why they can say in their pride that they're different or that they're exceptionable, exceptional, and that they're not like everyone else. Because one thing that the good guys like to do, even though they like to lower the standard, they like to also say that there are people who are not meeting that load standard, right? <laughs> they like to say that, oh, I'm not perfect, but God doesn't expect perfection. He just expects you to try, and I'm trying, but this person's not. I'm different than everybody else. I'm exceptional. I'm righteous. This guy's not righteous. Because he's not trying. They love it. It's about pride. And you see, if that's the way God was, and God be praised that he's not that way, because if that's the way that God is, if, if he's not really a God who cares about perfect righteousness, and if he's not really a God who cares about loving God with all the heart and loving your neighbors as yourself, and all he cares about is that you try your best, and he lowers the standard so that you can get in if you just try, then we're going to have a heaven that's full of self-righteous, proud people. And it's not going to be about God and his grace. And most of all, it's not going to be about the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul said if righteousness could come by keeping the commandments, Jesus died for what? Nothing. You don't need Jesus in in a scenario like that, in a world like that. If God's standard is lowered and the Pharisees are saying you just have to try and they're the ones doing it, What do you need Jesus for? Thank you, Jesus. You can go home now. We don't need your blood. We don't need your cross. We don't need your thorns. We don't need the whip. We are fine without you because we are righteous. Because God doesn't expect perfection. And heaven will be filled with self-righteous people, arrogant, proud people who look down on others and judge others, and there will be no Lamb of God to be praised in him. Which brings me to my third point. The Pharisees appear righteous, but in actuality, they are not. And God does not want us to be deceived by these deceivers. The Pharisees appear righteous, but in actuality, they are not. Certainly in verse 23, their question to Jesus sounds pious, and it sounds like they're concerned for religion and for truth, but it's not true. This is the question. The question in verse 23 is, by what authority do you do these things? That's the question that people ask when they don't know how to resist what you're saying. Right? What is Jesus preaching? We've talked about this. If you go backwards in Matthew, you see what he's preaching. Jesus is preaching perfect righteousness. Just go read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching perfect righteousness. Jesus is saying you have to be completely righteous in order to enter the kingdom of God. If your eye causes you to sin, you cut it out. Because if your eye causes you to sin and you don't cut it out, you're going to go to hell. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you look with lust, you commit adultery in your heart. If you don't cut your eye out, you're going to go to hell. Perfect righteousness. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be perfect. That's Jesus' teaching. And... Good guys don't know how to resist this teaching. They don't know. And so because they don't know, all they can try to do is silence this kind of preaching. Because good guys can't oppose what true preachers of righteousness are saying, they try to oppose that you are saying it. You don't have the authority to say these things. Where's your badge? Right? They don't, they don't know how to deal with what you're saying, so they just try to silence him. Silence his preaching of righteousness (laughs) because his preaching of righteousness is going to make us look bad and like everybody else. Jesus shows that they're a bunch of cowards. Good guys are afraid to be honest. Right? Good guys are afraid to be honest. People that think they're good and that think that God only requires you to try and they think that they're better than others, they don't like to be honest and actually look at what the scriptures really say. They'll read the Bible superficially, quickly, ignoring the most important words. They don't like to be honest. And Jesus exposes them by his question. Jesus says, all right, I'll ask you a question, and uh, if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. And he shows that they were not sincere. They were not truthful. They were not pious. They just were trying to silence him. Jesus says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from man? And as we saw, you know how they reasoned about it. If we say it's from heaven, then he will ask, why didn't we believe him? If we say it's from man, the people will be mad at us, and we don't want to go down that road, so we'll just say we don't know. And Jesus doesn't say, I don't know either. Jesus says, I won't tell you either, (laughs) right? (laughs) Neither will I tell you, you hypocrites, cowards liking to hide behind your fig leaves and pretend you're good when you're just like everybody else. Christ's authority came from God. Good guys like man-made authority because man-made authority is easy to control and you can silence people who preach true righteousness, right? Jesus then goes on to share three parables that we're going to look at um, in the following weeks. We're going to look at the first one this morning, He goes on to give three parables that are directly addressed to the Pharisees. To expose them for what they actually are. To show them that what they appear is not what they actually are. And what God thinks about them. The first parable, the parable of the two sons. A man comes to one son and says, Son, Go work in my vineyard. And what does the first son say? I will not. Actually, I will not is is more like this. I don't want to. That's what basically the son says. I don't want to. And so he he doesn't. Of course, later he goes. Contrast in verse 30 what the second son says. Look how polite and respectful the second son says. What he says is, and contrast it with the rudeness of the first. The rudeness, the first guy doesn't take, doesn't make any pretenses, does he? He says, I don't want to. Truth. He spoke truth. The second guy says, I go, sir. Curios, Lord. Master, I will do it, Master. I'm your man, Lord. In fact, go is even not in the text. It's just I, sir, me. <laughs> look at me, master, I will go. And he doesn't. He says one thing, but he doesn't. A pretense of loyalty. Notice that they both didn't want to go, but one lied about it, and one pretended that he did. Both sons are the same, in that they both didn't want to go. There was none that was more exceptional than the other. But one of them lied about who he actually was, and one didn't. They were exactly the same. One wanted to appear better, different, and righteous. And this is what the Pharisees are doing, Jesus said. You say one thing, but you do another. You say, but you do not do. You teach people that they need to keep the law, and you don't keep the law. You say that you're righteous, but you're not actually righteous. You're self-righteous, and that's no righteousness at all. All self-righteous people are like this. They say, and they don't do, because none of them actually obey. Is there anyone here in this room who obeys the law of God? Who loves the Lord their God with all of their heart, and who loves their neighbor as they love themselves? Anyone? Is there anyone in this city, do you think, who loves God with all their heart, and their neighbor as themselves. Now, the Bible teaches us that if you do that, then you do everything. You would never sin. Sin is a violation of the law. But those two commandments are the summation of the law. So if you keep those, you're not a sinner. Do you think there's anyone in this city who keeps the law? Is there anyone in this country, do you think, that keeps the law? Who doesn't sin now? No sin. How about in this world? Is there anyone in this world who keeps the law and doesn't sin? No, Solomon said, there's not a righteous man in this world who does good and does not sin. That's what Solomon the wise said. There's not a righteous man who does good and doesn't sin. To be righteous, you need to do good and not sin. If you you sin, then you're not doing good, and if you're not doing good, you're not righteous. Now, how many people, I hope there's not, but is there anyone in this room who even though you don't keep the law, you say you're a good person? You, you, don't, you sin and you don't love God with all your heart, you don't love your neighbors yourself, but you walk around with leaves. And you say, I'm righteous, because God doesn't expect perfection. Therefore, I'm better than those people who are unrighteous. Think there's anyone in this city that even though they sin and don't obey the law, they walk around leafy? How about in this in this country, in this world? This world is full of Pharisees. They don't realize they're the main antagonists to God. They don't realize that it's this that is their big sin. They don't realize that it's this that's keeping them out of the kingdom of heaven. They don't realize that it's this that brings down the severest rebukes from Christ. It's one thing to be a sinner. It's another thing to be a sinner who pretends he's not, right? God knows you're a sinner. Don't pretend that you're not. And by being a sinner, I don't mean like the good guys would say, well, I'm not perfect, but he doesn't expect perfection. God knows you're a sinner. He does expect perfection, and you're not that, and you're unrighteous. Just admit it. A hypocrite is someone who is a sinner and pretends he's not. So do you want to know how to not be a Pharisee? Do you want to know how to not be a fig tree with leaves that has no fruit on it? Just confess that you're like everybody else. Just confess that you're unrighteous. Just confess that you're a sinner. Just stop judging people. Stop saying that I'm better than other people. Stop saying that God requires less than perfection and you'll have no problem. You will not be a fig tree with nothing but leaves on it. You will not be a Pharisee. And in verse 31 and 32, we see the opposite of the Pharisee. The publicans, which were the tax collectors and the harlots, to the Pharisees, these were the worst kind of people. In fact, you're not supposed to eat with people like this. Now, the kingdom of God everywhere is is described as a feast, so God obviously wants to eat with these people. The the publicans and the harlots who made no pretenses of being righteous, Jesus says, here are getting saved. And it's not because they stopped sinning, and so now they become Pharisees, because no one stopped sinning. It's because, as it says here in verse 32, they believed in John's message, which is the way of righteousness. Because, brothers and sisters, the Bible everywhere teaches us that there is a true way to actually be righteous. I don't want to communicate in this sermon that there is no way to be actually righteous, but I do want to say this. According to the Bible, there is absolutely no way to be absolutely righteous by obeying the law. You cannot ever Be fruity in the sight of God by obeying the law. (laughs) Impossible. Because the law requires perfection, and you, as a sinner, will never give that because you're a sinner, and because you're selfish, because you're wicked, basically because you don't love God and you don't love your neighbor, which is what it requires. But there is a true way of being righteous, and this is the way that John preached. For it says here that John came in the way of righteousness. Interesting that the Pharisees thought they were all about righteousness, but they weren't. John came in the way of righteousness, not you guys. John came and preached the truth about righteousness. John preached that righteousness meant absolute perfection. John preached that that's what God required. John preached against the Pharisees' hypocrisy. And John gave hope to the harlots and the publicans because John pointed his finger toward the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who takes away your sin, you or the Lamb? John says, the Lamb. The Pharisees said, you. You've got sin problem. The Pharisee says, look, you need to deal with it. John says, you've got a sin problem, and so do they. And the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Is what will take care of your sin problem. And the Pharisees and the harlots, or excuse me, the publicans and the harlots, these sinners that the Pharisees look down on, they put their faith, their trust in God's grace for sinners. It's all about grace. The whole point of the Bible, it's all about Jesus' death on the cross for us sinners. I can't make this more clear. If we listen to what the Pharisees are saying, it's not about Jesus anymore. It's not about the cross. But if we listen to what John is saying, it's all about the cross. It's all about Jesus. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray and all of us have turned to our own way. That's everyone. And if you're acting like a Pharisee or a leafy tree, you're saying, no, not me. Or maybe I went astray at one time, but I'm back. I don't need the Lord to lay upon him the iniquity of us all. Maybe the iniquity of most, but not me. But the prophet Isaiah summing up the whole point of the Bible, the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And by his stripes we are healed. And by his making intercession for transgressions in his death, we are justified or made righteous in the sight of God. And this is the whole point of the Bible, that sinners who are guilty of breaking the law by putting their trust in Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross for them are, wow, suddenly righteous in God's sight because all their sins have been taken care of by Jesus. And God welcomes them into the kingdom of heaven as forgiven sinners, as sinners who have been washed clean, as we sang about in that song, their garments washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Their sin was as scarlet and now it's as white as snow. Why? Because they stopped sinning and kept the commandments? No! But because the Lamb who was slain shed his blood for the remission of our sins, your sins. These aren't just the sins of the world blob out there. This is your sins. No matter how bad your sins may be, Jesus died on the cross for them. His blood is the only thing that can take care of them. And God did it because he loves you and wants to take care of it for you. Why don't you just put your trust in him and stop pretending you're righteous when you're not and say, God, I need you to save me. I'm a fig tree with no leaves. Please speak the word of blessing and heal me through the blood of your son. What's so interesting is that the Pharisees, on the other hand, rejected John. Their pride would not allow them to hear this message. They don't want to be like everybody else. They don't want to go to a heaven where there's no pride. They don't want to go to a heaven where everyone's on equal footing before the throne of the Lamb. They want to go to the heaven where they get what's due them, and others who didn't do as well as they are below them. Pride keeps them out of the kingdom of God because they won't believe the message of John. Think about these Pharisees who looked so good and thought they, they were so righteous, the good guys, seeing all these really bad guys in their sight going to John and getting baptized and believing in the message of the cross. Do you think they want to get in line with those guys? No way. What's interesting in Luke chapter 7, verse 30 Luke tells us exactly what John was preaching, and it says exactly what the Pharisees rejected in his message. This is a quote out of the Bible. They rejected the counsel of God against themselves. Isn't that interesting? That means God spoke a word against them. God said, you are guilty, and they rejected that. They said no. Maybe they sat on the shore that day and said, we're not saying we're perfect. We're just saying God doesn't require perfection." And in God's sight, I'm great. He's not, he doesn't have a word of counsel against me. John says he does. And you need the lamb. They should have seen what God was doing in that all these sinners, harlots and publicans, were coming to John and being saved from their sins. Even today, you know, the world should know when they look at, the preaching of Christ, when they look at the preaching of the gospel and they see the most wretched sinners, the ones that the world says are the bad guys, when they see them finding hope and peace and joy and salvation in Christ, they should automatically know this is the truth from God because he's, he's saving sinners. These, these people that we say are hopeless are actually receiving hope. From where is this hope coming from? Well, obviously not from man, but from God. And they should have known this is from God but they didn't, they're blinded because of their self-righteousness and pride. When a man like David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, receives Jesus Christ as his savior by putting his faith in the death of Christ for him, and he receives peace and hope and joy, the whole world should know that's from God because that man is not being saved or getting hope from man, but from God. So in closing, how are you? appearance of righteousness or actually righteous do you seek to be better than others do you confide in that you think you're better than others at least i'm not like hitler god looks at me do you pretend to be righteous are you leafy or are you fruity do you believe when God speaks his counsel against you, and he says it because he loves you, that there is no one who's righteous, not even one. Not even one. Not one. Nope. No one in this room is righteous in and of themselves. Do you believe when God says that about you? Do you believe that you're not different than anyone else? You're not exceptional. Exceptional. You're not different. You're not righteous. You're just guilty, and God just loves you and sent his son to save you from your sins? Do you believe in the way of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ? That he's all you need and that it is all about him and it's not about you. And that heaven is all about the lamb and his praises, not about you and your praises. Do you believe that he was made a curse on the cross on that tree for us so that we could be saved? Do you believe this? Is this what your faith is all about? The object of your faith? Is this what it's about? Or is it about you? Because it can only be one of the two. And I want to warn you if it's not about Christ and it's about you, then beware of the curse. Because at any time and at any moment, God could curse you. Because he would just be giving you what you deserve. And that's what you've been asking for, isn't it? On the other hand, without any delay, Do what the Bible tells you to do and accept God's counsel against you, but also accept his message of love for you that he, your savior, has done it all, has paid it all, and there's nothing left for you to do but believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message that you have for the world. And Lord, we thank you for your message of counsel against us, which maybe at first sounds harsh and cruel, to hear that you're not a good person, that you deserve wrath. But God, we thank you that that is a message of love because that's the truth and we're just the ones deluding ourselves. Thank you that you speak the truth to us so that we might be saved. Lord, help us to see this morning that this is not casual. This is a matter of eternal life or death. Help us to see that the words that you speak, you speak to our souls individually, timelessly, beckoning us to believe the truth, to stop pretending Lord, I thank you for everyone here who has accepted your gift of righteousness through faith in the blood of Christ. I thank you for every one of my brothers and sisters here who is washed clean, not because of who they are, but because of who you are and what you've done. I thank you that we'll be praising you in heaven for how amazing you are and your amazing grace. Thank you that you will get all the glory and no man will have any pride. Lord, I just pray that you would save people in this city You would cause them, Lord, to wake up out of the delusion, Lord, of thinking that they're good and lowering the standards. Help them to see, God, that there is no hope in themselves and that it's just a lie. Help them to see that the devil is so tricky in his deceptions. And, Lord, help them to see how much you love them and what you did for them and how it's so much greater than any one of us can even imagine. Thank you that we can take all of our joy, peace, and hope in you. Thank you for being our wonderful Savior. Lord, we just glorify you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.